0: older Americans apparently losing the battle against junk food some new research out just a few few minutes ago actually shows that one in eight older Americans may actually be addicted to those highly processed snacks NBC's medical contributor Dr. Natalie Azar here to explain why that's so bad for you and how we can build up our willpower perhaps Mm -hmm. so how do do we define this sort of addiction because I think a lot of folks like you know something salty something sweet from time to time in the pantry when does it become well, a problem? So it's kind of tricky to talk about food addiction, as it may not come as a surprise to you guys, but there is a debate in the scientific community about whether or not food can actually be addictive. Ooh. There's critics who contend that while there's certain behaviors that can parallel uh, you know things like cravings that can actually look like addiction. Um, you can't really fully abstain from food. It doesn't actually have a formal diagnosis like binge eating does, for example. But others would argue that certain behaviors and physiological effects um, do actually qualify as addiction. And so, yeah. Go ahead. What did this study find? So right. So this was a study that actually surveyed 2,000 adults between the ages of 50 and 80, and they asked them a bunch of symptoms on an 11-point scale. And if they had two out of the 11, it qualified as addictive behavior, and here were the three most common. About 24% of respondents basically said that they had cravings at least once per week. They tried to cut down on their junk food at least two to three times per week. And they also had symptoms of withdrawal at least once per week mm-hmm. and that this caused distress in their lives. Withdrawal. And yeah. that, yeah, withdrawal symptoms. And that that was actually enough to qualify as a diagnosis of food addiction. You said you they surveyed people ages 50 to yes. 80. That's right. Are there certain people who are more likely to become addicted? There were, Hoda. Actually, they found that women were twice as likely as men. Um, people between the ages of 50 and 64, those individuals who were overweight, and also people who rated their mental health as either fair or poor were also more likely to experience this kind of food addiction. Yeah, that's curious. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Well, good evening. And yes, this is the FLCCC Weekly Update. You've got the right channel. And no, we don't usually begin one of these webinars with a video clip from the Today Show. In fact, I don't think we've ever done it before. However, on this particular medical topic, they got it right. There is such a thing as a junk food addiction, sugar, flour, lots of the stuff that's put in packaged products mm, is put there because you're going to keep buying it because you can't stop eating it true confessions, true confessions. In my younger days, <clears throat> I would come home with a quart of ice cream, mint chocolate chip or chocolate, good stuff, dig into with a spoon of it. And I could not stop until I'd finished the whole thing. And then did I feel miserable and oh so angry with myself. i be honest, I did it once with a half gallon. That was really, really bad. But <clears throat> fortunately, uh, this I'm Betsy Ashton, by the way, creative director of the FLCCC Alliance, and I'm glad that I've learned a few things about foods and what they do to the body along the way. And tonight we are going to go a lot deeper on this subject than the Today Show did because we have two top doctors. We have Dr. Paul Merrick with us, who's been looking into this subject a lot lately, and he's joined by Dr. Joan Ifland, a researcher and educator in the field of food addiction and allergies with a doctorate in addictive nutrition from Union Institute and University and an MBA from Stanford. She is the founder of Food Addiction Research, F-A-R, goes by, and the Addiction Reset Community. ARC. And she's the lead author of the first academically published description of food addiction in humans, and a lot more, which you'll find out. She will tell you why certain refined food consumption behaviors meet the criteria for substance use disorders, things like tobacco use and alcohol. And Joan and Paul will talk about changing those bad overeating behaviors. But first, One important thing, there was big information over the weekend that came out in the past few days about possible and very troubling DNA contamination in the mRNA COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. Now, there's still a lot to be learned about that uh, that we hope to share with you next week. But Paul will give you the FLCCC team's assessment of what we do know after he and Joan Ifland fix our bad eating habits. So Joan and Paul, come on out here. We we need your help.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Betsy.
0: So
3: it's a, to... Actually, it's a pleasure to have Joan on with us today. She She actually wrote the book on food addiction. So we couldn't have anyone more qualified than Joan to join us tonight. And so, you know, I I think the statistics that they quoted in that little NBC piece were a little bit at the lower end.
2: Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Dr. Merrick, for starting out with that topic. Yes. If people want to, we can go to the DSM-5 addiction diagnostic criteria. uh, anybody who's familiar with diagnosing alcoholism knows that there are 11 criteria and if someone meets 6 or more it's considered to be a severe addiction the right level of care for a severe addiction is a couple of years of residential treatment so if you want to just start blowing people's socks off let's let's start right there there are 6 of those 11 criteria which do appear I think, in over 80% of, of the U.S. population. And so if let's you want, Dr. Merrick, that. I'll just, just him
3: down. Just, just let's stop there. So Dr. Ifland said 80%. So I think that is a cautionary tale that 80% of Americans do have some behavior that would qualify as a food addiction.
2: Processed food addiction.
3: Yes. Okay. It's we very, need to
2: r- very rare to be it's not r- it's not impossible, but it's a different mechanism for somebody be, to be doing volume eating of broccoli. Yes. Yeah, that's so volume we need a, eating. That's a yeah, process. Yeah. So
3: addiction. I was incorrect. It's not food addiction. It's processed food addiction. I think that because obviously we all have to eat. Yes. But, but the problem is that most many people are addicted to processed food. So do you want to continue with what you were talking about, the (laughs) definition and how many people actually have this disorder? All right. And and then I think describe to us what a typical food, processed food-addicted person looks like.
2: Okay. Uh, It's surprising. You know, it can be a kindergartner. It can be the choir leader. And it can be what you might expect to somebody who's carrying a lot of adipose tissue. But the main thing to do is to stick to the diagnostic criteria. And you can ask your patients these six questions. These are six out of the 11 diagnostic criteria and see how close they get to the threshold for a severe addiction. So it's unintended use. It's you open the package, you're gonna eat one, but you eat the package. Or you wake up in the morning and you're gonna eat clean that day, and by 10 o'clock you're in the front of the vending machine. Now, how widespread could that possibly be? Well, think about the the population statistics. 44% of Americans are obese, and another 40% are overweight. So did these people intend to become obese and overweight, no. So there had to be some unintended use there. Criteria number two: failure to cut back. Now, uh, I think a third of the country is dieting at any given time. But go back to that number of 83 percent of the country is overweight or obese. Most of them have tried to lose weight. We do see studies showing that within three years, most people who have lost weight regain it cravings, uh, cravings have been so normalized that I think people don't know they have them, but cravings are correlated with BMI. So you go back, okay, on a scale, on a range of severity, you've got 83% of the population having some degree of cravings. And then go down to the bottom of the criteria list to the last three, uh, use in spite of knowledge of consequences. So those 83% of people know when they're eating fattening food that they're going to get more adipose tissue on them. The fifth criteria is tolerance, progression, using more over time. Those statistics are stunning. This all started in the mid-1980s when the tobacco industry brought their addiction business model to processed foods and bought Kraft, Nabisco, and General Foods. So maybe at that time, you know, 50% of what people ate was processed. It's up to 73% now. So because gradually over those 30-some years, the whole population has eaten a greater and greater percentage of their food in processed substances, food-like substances. And then the last criteria is withdrawal. And so we see epidemics of headaches, nausea, panic depression uh, that could be associated with withdrawal. So I would say, in in under these circumstances, that you all are just part of a cutting edge community, medical community, why not just run through those six questions when somebody comes into your office? If they're sick enough to be in your office, if they've eaten so much that now they have consequences, Looking at the intensity of the business, the addiction business practices, why not just ask them those six questions?
3: So maybe it would be good for the audience to define what processed food is, because people may may not recognize what is real food and what is processed food.
2: Thank you. It is the process of processing that, that takes a plant. Now we don't see any evidence for animal proteins being addictive, but we do see evidence for animal fats uh, being addictive. This is pretty relatively new research, but it's really useful. So when you take a plant, an edible plant, edible plants have natural endorphins in them. It's it's just a nice thing that mother nature did for us instead of just saying, eat so you don't die. It's like, eat so you get some pleasure. Well, that's lovely. And there's not enough endorphins in an unprocessed plant to create a high. Now, that's the key thing. That's what separates a substance from non-addictive to addictive. It's the high. You get a rush of dopamine or serotonin or opioid or cannabinoid. And when, if you just eat a plant and it's got a lot of fiber in it and you have to chew it for a while, those endorphins just nicely trickle into your body and they do a little tickling of the, the pleasure pathways and you have a nice experience. But when you process them, what are you doing? You're concentrating them. You're taking the fiber out. You're turning them into a crystal or a powder. You are turning them into a liquid or a syrup. And that can get into your system very quickly and create that high. So you get a rush of dopamine and then you get a crash. So the dopamine uh, neurons are depleted and they crash. You have no dopamine now or not enough and you feel uncomfortable and you feel edgy and you just, and now you have intense cravings and you go and get some more. And then you have a high and a crash. So that's, so what are the plants that become addictive through processing any kind of sweetener, any kind of flour. So whether it's bean flour or wheat flour, when you concentrate it, it it activates the serotonin pathways. And uh, gluten, gluten has a naturally occurring morphine in it, gluteomorphine. And when the, we had a hybrid a, a wheat hybridization program back in the 1930s, um, the gluten content doubled in wheat. Wheat So gluten can make people high and crash and then eventually give them depression. Uh, excessive salt. So this is research done at University of Florida where they noticed in the morphine recovery clinics that the people coming off of uh, morphine would take the salt shaker and just pour it onto their food. And now we have a salt withdrawal study. Then there's uh, dairy. Dairy has four different kinds of casomorphine in it. And all mammal breast milk has casomorphines in it. They're designed specifically to put a baby, regardless of species, to sleep. So the baby will eat and then sleep and absorb the nutrients. Well, there's enough casomorphine in cow milk to put a 100-pound baby calf to sleep. It's a pretty darn powerful set of casomorphines, four different kinds. And then when you concentrate that into cheese, I think of that as like when you concentrate poppies into hash or opium. All right. And then there's there are fats, uh, particularly processed fats, but excessive amounts of any kind of fat can set somebody up for activating the uh, cannabinoid system, the same system that's activated by cannabis. And then there's caffeine and then there are food additives. So certainly if it's in a package, um, it's in there because it's been processed. It makes it like, very easy to just go down the produce aisle, go across the back of the store to the um, animal proteins, come up the aisle with the oil and beans and rice and get out of the store.
3: You want to tell us about sugar addiction and <laughs> glucose addiction?
2: Yeah, so that's, um, you know, it's really interesting, but over the years, one of the things I've learned is, that, is to call this poly substance use disorder. Uh, and uh, it's another thing that makes the addiction very stubborn. And it's another reason why you need immersive treatment. So we're not sending millions of people, we're not sending 80% of the, the US to residential treatment for two years. But what we have learned Uh, in the last six years, is that you can provide that level of treatment over Zoom. And um, different substances have different addictive properties. So everybody talks about sugar addiction. But if you just treat sugar addiction, you say, get off the sugar. The addiction will transfer. And let's take, I know a lot of people in this community are, are getting results from a ketogenic. Diet, a ketogenic food plan, and what we have to do is we have to be very careful that when we take people off of sugar and put them on a ketogenic food plan, that we don't transfer the addiction to fats. And I have heard from uh, like some of the leaders at uh, various ketogenic conferences. They said "Joan, we want you to talk about." Uh, you know, we, ha- we, we get reports that people are binging one week and doing keto the next week, and then they lose control. They binge for a week and then they go back to keto. Well, there can be a progression where you take somebody off of sugar, but if you don't treat the addiction, i.e. you don't treat them thought control and behavior control and put them in an environment where they're not being stimulated to insanity, then, um, the addiction the sugar addiction doesn't actually stop it incubates this is work done in western Washington by an incredible researcher Dr. Grimm who has just demonstrated this for cocaine and it also exists in sugar the cravings don't go away they incubate and and I'm going to get to why that's crucial so if the person is still just craving using substances to control mood to um, to soothe themselves then they will slide right over to fats especially if they're told you can eat as much fat as you want because satiating. that is not true it's excessive fats that finally uh, alter the cannabinoid system to the point where now the person is craving from a different pleasure system so now they have addiction to fat but then what happens next is the sugar cravings re-emerge. Remember, they were just incubating, and now they wake up. And now the person has a severe combination, sugar and fat addiction, and that's lethal. That uh, Rob Lustig has written about that in the book Metabolical. That will cripple cell function in eight different
3: ways. So then the question is, um, you know, as we said, 80% of the population are overweight or obese that, you know, processed food addiction underlies much of this problem. So the doctor just says to the patient, well, you've got to go on a diet. That's the usual answer for, for processed food addiction is a diet. And so can you tell us why that's doomed to fail? And, you know, if someone actually is, you know, like Betsy admitted, is addicted to processed foods, you know, chips and snacks and ice cream, you know, uh, how do they actually deal with this? I mean, it's not dissimilar to any other substance abuse.
2: Right. Right. And the track record on substance abuse recovery is not great, but Zoom helps us uh, immeasurably. So I got off of sugars and flowers in 1996, and my biggest—yes, I love the weight loss, but I wasn't expecting that the cravings would go away, and the bloating would stop, and the brain fog would stop, and the fatigue would stop, and the lifelong sinus infection would clear up, and the allergies would clear up. And it was in the third week, eight, literally 18 days into giving up sugars and flowers that I became totally passionately committed to this field. And it's when I noticed that I had stopped yelling at my family. I had an anger problem and I had been doing a lot of things to make it go away, none of which worked. And there I got off the sugars and flowers and it stopped. And now I know exactly why. Sugars and flowers hyperactivate the um, corticotropin releasing factor pathway, the CRF pathway in the brain, which activates releases of adrenaline. That's what that's what was causing me to rage and be angry and irritable on and, and my poor family. So the, the point here is that this is a severe addiction. And classic treatment for severe addictions is residential treatment, a year of residential treatment, and then a year of work release. So how are we going to treat somebody? Um, it turns out you can do that over Zoom. And here is the big factor, which is really extensively documented in the research and generally not recognized in practice, which is processed foods cause care, uh, are associated with uh, cognitive impairment. So again, you think, oh, people are eating 73% of their food and processed foods. Well, then wouldn't you expect to see epidemics of uh, cognitive impairment, which is one of the corollaries of drug addiction? It's like, yes, we have epidemics of attention deficit. Attention is in the frontal lobe. Cognitive impairment, learning difficulties, memory loss, poor decision making, poor problem solving. Poor impulse control. So this is what does not work. is telling your patients what to do. You're telling them into learning brain cells that aren't working. The cravings are easily going to override uh, anything that you tell them. So that's what happens when the cravings act up, they pull the blood supply away from the frontal lobe and all that fantastic information you've given that patient, it has crashed. Those cells, those brain cells are not able to put out enough neurotransmitter to control behavior. So the craving neurotransmitters win the race. They race over to the behavior centers and they control behavior. It doesn't pass through the frontal lobe at all. You are focused on on getting information into that patient. You're going to die if you don't stop eating processed foods. Well, that information is not available when the processed food industry has been able to signal, trigger, stimulate, remind, message those hypersensitive, hyperreactive uh, pleasure centers. So the, the processed food industry can signal those hyperactive reward centers to release floods of craving chemicals, which travel right over across the midbrain to the behavior centers. The frontal lobe's not involved at all. So packing that frontal lobe with great information is, is not the way to go. I will tell you there, I'll, I'll give you the good news now. <laughs> How about the good news? Um, There is a system in the brain that which is higher than the addiction. And that is the urge to fit in, to belong, to be normal, to be accepted. That is the highest level of survival instinct in the human brain. Why? Because for 7 million years of evolution, humans needed to be in a band Uh, Seven to 12 humans in order to survive. Well, we don't have horns. We don't have fangs. We don't have claws. We don't have big muscles to run. We have each other. And so when that saber-toothed tiger leapt out, if you had seven people banded together, you could fight it off, but one person would die. So, what are humans still today? I mean, we've only had a frontal lobe for a couple hundred thousand years. It's like low man on the totem pole. It never gets blood flow in a in a crisis. It's going to go to uh, where are my people? I, I need to be close to my people. I, know, I need to know where they are and how close they are and where I'm going to run if I get into trouble. Those are mirror neurons, and they are found throughout the brain every part of the brain has mirror neurons in it and they do one thing they mirror so if they see an image of something they literally are reflecting that image down into the brain and stimulating those specific brain cells so you're experiencing what somebody else is experiencing an example if you see somebody that's sad how do you know they're sad It's not in here in the frontal lobe. It's because your mirror neurons are reaching down and stimulating your sadness brain cells. Well, this is really exciting news because if you can get a patient who's never for 20 years, 30 years, since they were six, and now they're 66 for 60 years, they've never been able to get through one day without processed foods. If you put them on a Zoom room around people who are eating clean i've seen it happen in three days i've seen it happen in four days in five days the the thoughts in their heads will change radically and they will be oh no i don't eat that my tribe doesn't eat that so we broadcast 15 hours a day so that People can come on, come come in, come out, come in, come out as much as they like during the day. But the brain decides who to copy based on who they see the most often. So that's why our programs are designed to make it very, very easy for people to see most often people who are eating clean and thinking positively and processing negative emotions and going to bed on time and moving and maintaining a productive positive relationships because stress will also trigger the addiction so people need to be calm in all circumstances so that's the answer and um we have a person in our community who's a uh, spent their career as a health systems evaluator uh, they have four degrees in the field i asked them once "Is there anything else like this out there and they said no nope. i said well what is it you know what is it about the program that is creating success and she says i it's the constant access so we broadcast 15 hours a day live with a live trained peer support host and we do it around the clock we broadcast for 3 or 4 or 5 hours and then take a break so if somebody wakes up in the middle of the night in new york in a panic they can open their screen and there will be the same kind compassionate understanding science-based people but they'll have an australian accent (laughs) they'll be broadcasting from australia and this is the answer and i and i hope well this is my my fervent hope my own daughter is an mda md and my my fervent hope is that every health practitioner listening to this right now says oh it's not my fault It's not my fault when my patients don't do well. It's not my fault. I haven't had the right resources. I haven't had the right framework. I haven't had the right diagnosis. It's an addiction and it's a bad one. So Dr. Merrick, does that help?
3: Yeah, so you want to tell me, I think what we're doing as a society is we as parents are raising children that are, that are food addicted that then grow up to be adolescents that are food addicted. So what advice do you have for parents in terms of what and how to feed their children?
2: So the main thing for a parent is to recognize the children, their, their children's mirror neurons are disproportionately influenced by the parents. And if the parents are eating clean, the the children are much more likely to eat clean. The key thing here is to keep processed foods out of the house. There is a mechanism where if if a processed food is available, if it's in the house, particularly if it can be seen, if it's on the counter, it's triggering those reward centers. And even if you say, I'm not going to eat it, those processed foods, just by their presence, by their availability, are able to just trickle excessive dopamine into the brain. So over time, it builds up and builds up and builds up until there's enough of it to be uh, latching on, to be docking on the behavior brain cells. And then And the person is doing something we call the zombie walk. Their brain, their frontal lobe is screaming, no, 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 we don't want to get that. And they're 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 walking to the kitchen anyway. It's the zombie walk, and then they get out uh whatever it is, and and they eat it, all of it. Loss of control. Yeah. So, so keep the stuff out of your house, parents. Um, don't eat it in front of your children. In fact, don't eat it. Um, they are going to go through a horrendous withdrawal. And I've seen parents being able to hold on for three days uh, before they crumble, but it's a four-day withdrawal. And the child will throw themselves on the kitchen floor. They will hate you with every fiber in their being. And they will be screaming, I hate you, I hate you. And this is just withdrawal. It's just, it's... The saddest thing in the world to see a four-year-old in that kind of agony, uh, it's withdrawal. Hang on, hang on. You will get your child, you will get a a better child, a better child back at the end of the the four days. And then they'll try again. So the the teacher will push sugar onto them. Oh, you can have this. Or the, the nice lady at your faith organization ah yes and then they just push drugs on your children i mean i've had mothers tell me they had to like insert themselves between a child and a determined sugar pusher uh, to protect them and your child will come home sick and then you have one small job which is to connect the dots oh did you eat something unusual today and they'll say no uh, but then they'll the, so what you're going for is natural aversion. so that the child gets it because pain aversion is another great driving force in the brain and that's what you're harnessing so that when they see that candy that uh, somebody brought for the birthday party, they will feel the headache right? and they will feel the uh, the stomach ache. So, yeah. That's what I did with my kids. They had all their food with them every every morning. I developed a whole system where I cooked all of our food on the weekend. They had a whole bag of food with them. Every time they left the house, they had enough food uh, so that they wouldn't go hungry until I saw them the next time. And they just decided uh, at some point that they would rather w- eat what I had sent with them and be happy than eat whatever was there at their school, and be sick. You and never, never fight with them, and never criticize them. Just uh, uh, commiserate, you know, console them if they come home sick. But don't ever fight with them over food. You you can control a lot through the queuing in the household. If you have a crock pot full of clean food, and um, that's the smell in the household, you're harnessing that basic uh, food seeking um uh, urge in the in the child's body and don't think that the, I mean, okay here's one other thing you could say okay we're going to eat clean until saturday and then you can eat whatever you want and so that you get them isolated they they can't process the food anymore which means it's going to make them really really sick and just let them eat all their sugar all the crap they want on that saturday morning and let them get sick and then, let them do it one more Saturday morning. And then you'll see that they don't even ask for it after that. they've They've got that association planted in their heads. Pain aversion is a great, a great friend of the parent who wants to keep their kids off processed
3: foods. You want to talk a little bit about the preservatives in processed food? I think people tend to underestimate the chemicals, pesticides, the glyphosate and all these these toxic chemicals in highly processed foods.
2: Well, yes. I mean, yes, 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 yes. It's another good reason um, to buy organic, but an organic cigarette is still gonna kill you. And it's one of the things that that these, these soulless food manufacturers do is, you know, they'll take the worst product, you know, um, cookies and ice cream are at the top of the list of uh, foods that are highly addictive. They combine all of the addictive substances. So all of the reward pathways are in a flame. And then you see, oh, but it's organic. So that is speaking directly to the addiction. The addiction is saying, oh, let's get that. And the frontal lobe is saying, no, 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 no. And then you come across it on at the grocery store, and the addiction screams out, oh, but look, it's organic. Oh, okay. Well, then we'll get it this one time. <laughs> it's just like for gluten free. Ah, oh, gluten free processed foods. Okay. Anyway, yes, by of course, by organic. And um There is some suggestion, and it's consistent with the tobacco addiction model where manufacturers do put addictive substances into products. Like we know that the tobacco manufacturers uh, isolated nicotine and put extra in the cigarettes. We know that the alcohol manufacturers put extra alcohol in the low alcohol, like wine cooler drinks. You know, Coca Cola is called Coca Cola because it started out being um uh a stim you know a stimulant it had real cocaine in it and then uh, people started to question cocaine so they put caffeine in instead yeah so this is it's all deceptive they're only about 1% of the food in a grocery store is is real food the rest of it is being experienced by the brain as
3: as recreational drugs so would you agree many people say that the, on the periphery of the grocery store is real food and it towards the center as you go towards the center then the food becomes more and more processed do you think there's some
2: yeah um, truth do. in that i do um it is about one percent my when early on you uh, know 25 years ago uh, I hired one of my daughter's friends, and the three of us went through uh, a high-end grocery store, um, a big chain throughout the US and increasingly other countries, and we counted, and it was 1%. 1% of the items in that grocery store were unprocessed, 1%. And I asked a litigator once, a food industry litigator, So, who do you think is most vulnerable to litigation? And without hesitation, this litigator named that big, uh, quote unquote, healthy chain. And I said, why? Why them? He said, well, they're the most deceptive. So they're putting they're they're presenting these products as if they were healthy and whole, and they're not. I said, well, that's pretty interesting.
3: So, what would you say to people who said the problem is is that? processed food is really economical and cheap you can buy a happy meal for 2 or 3 dollars whereas real food is more expensive
2: that's that's just a deceptive that's that's in the same playbook as cigarettes are sexy it's an out and out bold faced lie um but what what do they care nobody's going to tell them to stop doing it So here's uh, the truth: a cup of organic beans and a cup of organic brown rice costs sixty cents. So if you uh, put on, if you just, if you have twelve seconds, and you can get out your crock pot and you can dump a bag of beans and a bag of uh, brown rice in there uh, before you go to work you can have a meal for 60 cents when you get home and it'll be faster than fast food. You won't be waiting through any lines. And there you go.
3: Really? That's, that's really good. So Betsy, maybe we have some of our listeners who have some questions oh, to ask. We
1: sure do. <laughs> we we really do and um you know you you mentioned organic uh, moments ago and um there's so many things labeled organic um is our uh Jennifer wants to know you know are organic snacks considered processed foods crackers well I guess yes cakes I I would assume yes At breads are all breads processed It's even sourdough.
2: Yep. Yep. They're all made from flour.
1: Okay. You throw out all bread. You just don't even touch it?
2: I don't anymore. Um, You know, there are plenty of people who can have a slice every now and then, but there are plenty of people who can have a cigarette every now and then. It doesn't make it okay. So people have gotten... People have gotten this idea that the the only issue is whether you can control your consumption because binging is so prevalent. Um, So if I can control it, I can have it, right? No. (laughs) I mean, I could control, um, you know, probably one line of cocaine. That doesn't mean I should have it. Okay. um... The, The deciding factor is, is it going to hurt me? And so everybody knows that one cigarette, it will hurt you. It's it's so well known that smoking one cigarette is considered to be a pathological act. Now, processed foods are 10 times more damaging than, than cigarettes. It's just not known. So eating a slice of bread isn't considered to be a pathological act. All
1: right. Um yeah. out all the bread is going to be hard for a lot of people. I mean, you know, what do you is, do it
2: in, instead? What do you I just instead? want everybody to hear this again and again and again. We didn't ask for it, but this is yeah. a severe addiction. Yeah. And so it's it's pop to me, you know, 28 years into this, I've been I've been looking at this, studying it, writing whatever for 28 years. Yeah. And 22 of those years, I spent looking for a reliable answer, where I could say to somebody, do this, and you will get off the processed foods. That's how wicked and severe. Well, it's killing 1.6 million Americans a year. It's killing people at four times the rate of COVID. This is a severe, dangerous, stubborn, hard-to-treat addiction unless you do one thing, and then it becomes easy. And that is to harness those mirror neurons. They are stronger than any other. The the neurologists hired by the truckload at the food industry, they can alter any other part of the brain. They cannot alter mirror neurons, but they can capture them. They can capture them and say the mirror neurons want to copy those happy, happy people drinking Coca-Cola on the screen. So you have to give them enough screen time and programming, healthy programming, that the mirror neurons will slide over, latch on to, and copy healthy people. That's the only thing that I have found that works in 28 years of of trying stuff and reading research.
1: I have a question for you about, you mentioned eating clean. So give an example of what would be a clean dinner that has, you know, three or four or
2: five different things in it. What what do you eat? Well, because I make all my own meals, I only put really four things on my plate at any given time because I'm too busy to make more than four things. Okay. okay so On my plate is going to be a protein. That's any kind of beef, any kind of lamb. Any kind of chicken, any kind of fish, any kind of turkey, any kind of pork, any kind of shellfish, any kind of beans, any kind of lentils, any kind of amaranth, any kind of buckwheat, any kind of millet, any kind of quinoa. So on my plate is going to be a protein. Proteins are enormously stabilizing. Animal proteins, there's no evidence for addiction, addictive properties. And I think that's one of the reasons why carnivore is so popular is because people don't have to treat the addiction, but they do have that sense of control. The next item on my plate is going to be vegetables and they're going to still look like they did at uh, when they were harvested. So if it's broccoli, it looks like that little green tree. (laughs) I I look at it. There's a little green tree there. It's not broccoli powder. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a vegetable that still looks like it did at the moment of harvest. Some people argue about mashing or not mashing and people can decide that for themselves. And then for for me, there used to be a starch. I'm 70, I'm almost 72. I'll be 72 in a couple of weeks. I can't tolerate the starches anymore and maintain a nice weight. So I don't have them anymore. But when I got on this at age 44, I had um, brown rice or millet or beans or sweet potato or butternut squash or spaghetti squash or quinoa. I didn't have any of the gluten grains, Mm -hmm. but I had all the other starches. And particularly the winter squashes, they're very, very low carbohydrate vegetable. Some people could just call them a starchy vegetable. So if you can't tolerate any of the other starches because they give you cravings, No, some people can tolerate um, a spaghetti squash. So that's the third element on the plate. And then uh, some kind of fat. Do you use olive oil? I do use a cold-pressed olive oil or a cold uh, expeller-pressed coconut oil. I don't like using the nut oils. Nuts make you nutty. You know, there's a reason why they say that's a nutty idea. That's a nutty person oh they're going to the nut house uh are there a nut case they're no nuts have a profound influence on uh, behavior and there's a reason why that kind of truism has survived in the language there's some evidence that they have high levels of tryptophan which converts to serotonin so maybe you're getting on a high and a crash from them and a lot of and they're very high in fat so when somebody says to me, you know, I think I plateaued. I'm not losing any weight. I'm like, oh, just stop. It. Start. Are, are you eating nuts? Yeah, but just a handful. So, starting just for the- some reason, they just stop weight loss.
1: Let's go to breakfast. So, starting starting your first meal of the day, which may not be in the morning. It may ju- you may just do your coffee in the morning, and you're on your fasting. So, you come into the first meal, and so. Plain regular fat, no sweetener yogurt
2: with no I dairy. Like put, no dairy, dairy's out completely. It's got four different casomorphines in it. It's a product designed to put right. a 100 pound calf to sleep. I I'm heard not that. putting that in my body, I got too much to do.
3: So, would you say what the same for cheese? <laughs> yeah, with yogurt but and cheese, cheese is
2: worse. It's concentrated, those casomorphines are now concentrated. You look at labels and why does everything have casein in it? Okay. That's where the morphine is. Okay.
1: So well, what when do I have for instead? Breakfast? Uh, you're okay. not going go to go eat Cheerios. That's processed food. Right, right, but right. Is right. it
2: eggs every day? So I did eat eggs a lot and now I have an egg allergy. So just have eggs like once or twice a week. Um, what do you eat? When- okay. So on my breakfast plate is a protein. It's a a bigger serving than other meals in the day so that I'm super, super stable. I don't want my glucose going up and down. I want lots of vitamins and minerals in my system. So it could be bacon. It could be a steak. It could be a hamburger patty seasoned like sausage. It could be, pork sausage, probably that I made myself. You know, you just take ground pork and you mix in those seasonings. Bingo, bango, you got pork sausage. It could be eggs, it could be uh, a lot of countries have fish for breakfast. It could be um, it could be chicken sausage, it could be a chicken hash. If you've ever chopped up chicken and an onion and a sweet potato and just cooked that all together, oh my gosh, that's fabulous. So the so it's the same combinations as lunch and dinner. It's a big serving of protein. And and it could be a plant protein. Uh, And then you've got a a serving of starch if you want it, oatmeal or, um, you know, sweet potato or or any of those, beans, rice. You know, how many countries eat beans for breakfast? A lot. What about tofu? That's a plant
1: protein, but that's supposedly been adulterated with a lot of stuff.
2: I wouldn't touch tofu with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. It's a processed food. But eggs I don't know said, if it's but eggs. or not, but eggs and then a raw fruit. So instead of a vegetable you have raw fruit apples, crunchy nice crunchy apples to signal to your brain that you're eating a lot of food. and then um and then fat. So I would just do my two teaspoons of olive oil over the top of that. Okay. interesting very interesting, it's super That's simple. Un- yeah. all right. Now, I'm about um, we- to offer a, a, a class. It's a four week class, and I can send you all the details on how to create a custom food plan. Please do. So, how do you? Uh, I have I have what are called rotation videos, and here's how you do this: is you make you make uh, each day of the week one protein. So Monday is beef, Tuesday is fish, and you eat that all day long. Wednesday is pork. Thursday is chicken. Friday is shellfish. Saturday is turkey, and then maybe Saturday, uh, Sunday is a, a vegan protein. Okay, so you just do that every week, every week, every week. Every there's plenty of variety. There's there are many ways to make that into three and a half meals a day, and you start to notice. Wow, on Monday I have lots of energy. On Tuesday I'm really hungry all day. So that says your fish portions are not big enough. On on Wednesday, uh, my lips are swollen every Wednesday. Oh, you have a chicken allergy. And Thursday, I feel great. And Friday, I feel uh, I can't sleep. And and so you start to identify your own personal reactions to these clean foods. And then you say, oh, I did so good all week. I'm going to have da-da-da-da-da on Sunday. And then you see how sick you get. And that's a great way to teach yourself pain aversion and and then associate it with the processed foods. A lot of this is brain rewiring so that when you look at a processed food, you don't think yummy. You create a new pathway over here to, oh, headache and throwing up. It's, it's, okay. it's brain training. I sugar. gotta get a few more of these questions in because we've got some good ones.
1: And a lot of hey, I just of our want viewers... to ask
3: Joan what she thinks about fruit juices. Oh. Oh, okay.
2: just liquid sugar. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, I think people don't recognize that 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 this pure glucose, pure sugar.
2: Exactly. Well said. Very well. A said. lot of
1: our viewers also want to know um, what are your thoughts on organic carbs like chickpea or lentil pastas?
2: No way. No, that's the organic cigarette. All right. That's a Um, flower. So that's a wonderful, lovely plant that has been dried and ground up. Now that natural endorphin in that plant is concentrated. It's going to get into your system all at once, and you're going to get high and crash from it. That's an addiction.
1: I have a feeling you're going to say the same thing to Christina Clayton, who says, what is your feeling about erythritol? It is a product that can be used in place of sugar in cakes, drinks,
2: cookies, et cetera. All right. So one of the the ways that we determine the uh, kind of the addictiveness of a product, of a substance is how fast the dopamine release occurs after using it. And guess what wins? Sugar. And any other concentrated sweet taste. So like some people can't tolerate bananas, even though they're not processed. It's because they just have a lot of sweet taste to them. Half a second. Half a second from the time that that sweet taste touches the taste bud to the dopamine release.
1: You're gonna say the same thing about dried fruits, then?
2: I, yeah, the dried, dried mango
1: slices are, and the dried things yeah, that I love.
2: People think that they're that they're okay, but um, you just watch, and you know, you're slightly eating more of them, and you're craving them, and yeah, it's concentrated. It's concentrated. The endorphin is concentrated. Where,
3: where do you think? Where does coffee fit into the this picture?
2: It's very interesting. So processed foods make us groggy, like all drugs. Processed foods um, make us groggy. And so I think a lot of caffeine use comes out of trying to counteract the grogginess of the processed foods, brain fog, uh, just sleepiness. These, These are drugs. You know, you're doped up. That's dopamine. So... Um, what I do say to people is, please, 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 don't try to get off caffeine until you're off the processed foods. Make that the last one, because it um, you you could be using it to counter the grogginess. The, I'm going to tell you the fun part of all of this. Please <laughs> is is that you start getting these incredible, miraculous, winning the lottery kind of changes in your life in four days. Yeah, you might have a headache for four days. Yeah, your stomach might hurt. Yeah, you just can't get off that sofa and you're you're crabbing at everybody. But then you kind of pop out of it. And you're, you're just like, your head is clear. And you get to think about what you want to think about. And your body's not inflamed. And you're not bloated. And you have all this energy. And you're sleeping well. And you just can't wait to get up and Adam and your confidence has come up and the depression fades away. And, and you don't even know that you've had these things really crept in on little cat feet all those years. But then they go away and that, that that boil under your arm goes away and your hair looks better and your nails are stronger. And oh my gosh, this is so much fun. It's fun. Okay. We, I've got to get this one in
1: now. Elena wants to know how much fat is too much fat. So you're eating the bacon. Okay. And you've got the olive oil on some other things uh, and you've got the eggs. Uh, if someone is on a keto diet, she says, what is the upper limit of fat? Saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. Can fats alone be addictive? You sort of said that earlier on that they might be.
2: This is stunning research that came out of the University of Boston, uh, Pedro Coton's lab. Brilliant, simple, irrefutable. They took uh, three groups of rats, and they fed one group fats. They fed another group sugar, and they fed a third group normal uh, rat chow. And uh, they watched them. They were watching for progression. They were watching for hyperactivation of the reward centers in the rat brains. And they were watching for hyperactivation of uh, one of the behavior centers. Now, this is really interesting. If you just weighed the sugar versus the fat, the sugar was more addictive. How did they know? Because the rats accelerated their consumption of sugar uh, by volume more quickly. Then they accelerated their consumption of the fats. But if you did it on a caloric basis, because fats have a lot more calories than sugar, the fat, the progression of uh, compulsive use of the fats was actually faster than sugar. And you compare that to research showing that if you addict rats to sugar, saccharin, heroin, and cocaine, And you give them all those four levers to press, they'll choose the sugar. And if you take the sugar away, you say, oh, well, it's got calories in it. Maybe that's why they're, they'll choose the saccharin next. Okay. But the fat, I mean, where do we? Yeah, the fat. So we do have this evidence that fats are at least as addictive as sugar. And we know that sugar is more addictive than cocaine and heroin. You take all the fat off your bacon or what? How do you oh, how no, do that? Oh, no, 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 no. You've got to eat fats. You've got to eat fats. Your, your nervous system is encased in fats. You know, it'd be like trying to run the wiring in your house with no insulation. Nope, that's not going to work. You must eat fats. So I um, the most important thing about a ketogenic diet is to get the sugar and flour out. So get the refined carbohydrates out and see then if you have the results that you want. But that is not the whole story. You've got to remember that there's this predatory food industry out there, which is working night and day to trigger you. So getting the clean food uh, all organized at this point, 35 years into this, I don't think you can expect really consistent results unless you're also addressing, uh, protecting the person against triggering, messaging, prompting signaling from the food industry because that alone remember is enough to create that flood of cravings it's not just the food
1: forget forget what's all over the internet i mean you can't you can't escape it
2: well this is why we brought Why this is why we broadcast clean programming 15 (laughs) hours a day this is exactly why people who have not had success for 60 years can come into our programs and and have calm control within five days it's because we've also replaced all the signaling and now the signaling is oh we eat clean this i live in a culture my family my band my tribe oh they eat clean and then you've got that those mere neurons kicking in
1: I I have to tell you, I've I've gotten the message from on high that we have to wrap because we've hit the top of the hour. And of course, we have something else we want Paul to to talk about before I give a few announcements to people. But there's one last question. D. Smith wants to know, and so do I, is 88% chocolate a processed food? We've been told chocolate's good for your brain. It's got the fat in it.
2: Uh oh! Dang, um, we were told trouble. that cigarettes are rebellious and cigarettes are sophisticated and cigarettes are masculine, and now they're telling us that chocolate, which is a a nervous system destroyer, uh, mixed with sugar, which we know um, cripples cell function in eight ways, is good for us. I don't think so. Oh, it's not consistent with the
3: evidence. Sorry, Betsy.
2: You ruined it. You ruined it. <laughs> I. But here's the other my, thing. Do all a- this slowly. Do it according to your own pacing. Look at the five people around you. You are most likely to be doing what the five people around you are doing. Recruit them to say, let's try this for a week. Get through withdrawal with them. Get your mirror neurons lined up with five people so that you're saying inside your head, nope, we don't need that. Um, you can do this. I. I had a stepfather who was a salesman for general mills.
1: My mother made Betty Crocker cakes. She loved Bisquick. It was hopeless. I mean this, mm-hmm. and I've gone a long way from that, a long, long, long way from that. So, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to be really perfect. It's hard I'm, if you, I'm
2: going to look further into your information because its yeah, it's, it's, I think it's fair to say it's impossible yeah. if you're not in a community. And I don't think it's fair for you all to tell your patients you can do this if you don't get them into a protective community. you got to protect the signaling, the messaging that's reaching that very sensitized brain. We're going to have to have you back. Thank because you, this is really good
1: and a lot of good information. We have so many questions that we didn't get to you tonight. So we, we're just going to have to have you back. No,
2: email me. Um, I have a new community because we've seen a lot of incurable diseases go into remission. We now have a remission community. So email me at uh, joanifland at remissionoptimistic. And I, I will answer I will do anything. My My own MD daughter had to quit practice. She thought she'd be able to help people. She didn't. She said, Mom, I, I'm not going to do this. It's too frustrating. She took her MBA uh, at the same time, and she went over, and now she's a consultant. My heart breaks for practitioners. So write to me, Joan Ifland at Remission Optimistic, and I will answer your questions. I will do anything I can to help you.
3: Thank you, Joan. It's Thank been a you. pleasure.
1: Thank you All right, you so take much. care of you
2: guys. Thanks no. for the invitation, Paul. Don't go away
1: because we people do want to know about this whole business of DNA in vaccines. Uh, what do we know now, and and where are we on this?
3: Yeah, so it's it's a very troubling story. What we've discovered is that the original Pfizer vaccine, which they used for the study, they're made using process one which was a pure PCR what they then didn't tell us is that the vaccine which they rolled out to billions of people was actually made by a different process called which Pfizer calls process 2 mm-hmm. and so process 2 is not a PCR they use plasmids from a bacteria called e coli so they get the eco, they put the plasmids in these e coli and the E. coli then make the messenger RNA. The problem is you have to purify the product to get rid of the plasmid. A plasmid is a circular piece of DNA. And what we've discovered is that most of the vials of Pfizer vaccine are actually contaminated with the circular DNA called plasmid DNA. And what's even worse, it may actually contain what's called the SV promoter. And this is a promoter which makes the DNA go into the nucleus. So the problem is, is that you vaccinated with what you think is RNA, but in fact, what you're getting is RNA plus DNA with the potential for the DNA to then go into your nucleus and to then incorporate with your chromosome. So we are now becoming genetically modified organisms. And so this has not been well studied, but it's a very, very disturbing and very troubling uh, idea. The fact that there is, um, that there is D- this DNA in the vaccine has been replicated by a number of investigators around the world. So we, we remain steadfast in our position that no medical justification exists for anyone to receive any of the COVID-19 vaccines. We're concerned about the health outcomes resulting from the DNA, which is present in the COVID shots that I've just explained. We believe more researchers needed to fully understand the hazards that this DNA may pose because clearly one of the problems of the uh, incorporation of the DNA into our chromosomes is it may cause cancer. We need an, an IRB have to review the health effects of the DNA contamination. And once we know more, we will develop then treatment guides for people who've been injured by this DNA contamination. Oh
1: thank you.
3: Thank so you. we really need to understand where our healthcare agencies failed in allowing this contamination to happen because, you know, we had our concerns about the RNA vaccines and what the RNA was doing, but now the, the, the picture is, is a lot more sinister now that we know that there's maybe a fair amount of DNA plasmid in, in these shots And we believe that this is now time for, you know, for Congress to to wake up and to evaluate how this happened, how this could happen in the first place, and what needs to be done to solve this problem.
1: Yeah. We will. Thank you for, for digging into that. As yeah, so just been. as a
3: reminder, yeah. next week uh yep. Dr. Corey will be speaking with Dr. Rose and Jancy uh, on um on this issue.
1: Absolutely. We will be here same time, same place to look further into this and with people who have really been digging into it, uh experts, medical experts, and um stay tuned we will we will have it uh we have a few other things to tell you about folks um the childhood vaccination decision guide you know speaking of the vaccines the FLCCC advisor and pediatrician extraordinaire, Dr. Liz Mumper has a new guide to help support parents who are making decisions regarding their kids' childhood vaccinations. Choosing to vaccinate is complicated and the importance of informed consent and the ability to speak with your child's pediatrician openly and honestly and to ask questions has never been more important than now. You can find this guide on our website under tools and guides, or use the link on screen. And please make sure to share this with your friends and family who have babies and young ones to consider. Now then, our incredible doctors here at the FLCCC just never stop. Our own Dr. Mobin Sayed, better known to everybody as Dr. Bean, and Dr. J.P. Salibi, both have new teaching videos out. Dr. Bean's latest long story short shares a recent study demonstrating that the use of the diabetes drug metformin in the first four days of COVID symptoms lessened hospital utilization and the incidence of long COVID. And Dr. Salibi welcomed Scott Marsland, FNPC, for a deep dive discussion on augmented NAC. A lot of you wanted to know more about that. Well, it's available now. Both of these important videos are on our FLCCC Alliance Odyssey and Rumble channels or on our website at the links on the screen. Now then, you know, I don't know about all of you, but it sure feels to us like our entire healthcare system at all levels is in dire need of a complete overhaul a rebuilding from the ground up and a refocusing on what really matters, the health of the patient and the reestablishment of the vital doctor patient relationship. You, yes, each and every one of you, here tonight are helping us in this movement, helping us create a new system of real healthcare, helping us redefine medicine. We are calling on you to sign up today so we can share more updates on this front with you. You can do so at flccc.net forward slash redefine medicine. And with that, let's bring up our wonderful nurses, incredible women who are helping us just do that, you know, redefining medicine uh, day in and day out, CRNA, Christina Maros and our RN, Samantha Hanks. And how have you been doing tonight? Did you uh, hear a lot from our audience? We did. We had about 40 questions and we answered 33. Samantha is really good at answering these questions, by the way. I want to give her props for all of her help on, on this topic. And I wanted to mention
0: that, see, we did a Twitter space on um, reading food labels last night with Dr. Christina Carmen, and that's available on our Twitter account with the recording so our followers can listen to the program.
1: So we're getting more and more good information on how to navigate all of this food stuff. Um, I need to read. I I thought I was doing the right thing. Too much dairy. All my yogurt. Oh, no. You know, it's just... um, at least it's not ice cream. But anyway, uh, you're going to help me through this, right? You're going to help everybody out there through it. I yes. we, we need you. And we thank you so much for all the good that you are doing. Um, speaking of people doing good things, I, you know, finally have to thank you out there for being here with your support your generosity your stories your courage your time it is a true honor to share in this flccc family that we have created and you know that we are creating all the time so thank you so much we will see you next week but first but first and this is good you have to watch the my story that one of our Australian viewers sent us and asked this question, is this just anecdotal? What the critics will say, oh, it's just anecdotal. Can't be anything like that with the drug she's using. Or is it a signal of something more? Watch, and we'll see you next week.